Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. Earlier this year, we had the pleasure of hosting one of my all-time favourite writers, the novelist Neil Stevenson. If you heard last week's show, you might recognise his name as that of the man who coined the word metaverse. And if you love speculative or historical fiction, you'll probably also know him as the author of novels like Cryptonomicon, The Diamond Age, and my personal favourite, The Baroque Cycle, a 3,000-page trilogy that's ostensibly about Isaac Newton, but actually a breathtaking account of the birth of the modern world. Termination Shock is Neil's new novel about the climate crisis and an essential read for anyone interested in the place where science, global politics and big business meet. He joined us for a conversation with comic, author and broadcaster Robin Ince. Enjoy. Now I should start off, because we were talking about this just before we went on air, which is where is your mood now in terms of someone who deals with dystopian possibilities? Does that actually lift a weight off you by dealing with those on the page, or does it actually mean that sometimes you're weighed down by the dystopian thoughts? You know, I think getting it off one's chest feels good uh, in a way. You said, I've said my piece, you know, and there, that'll show them. And so it feels good in that sense, but I'm not sure if it really changes much. Do you find that, I mean, because with, with termination shock, dealing with climate change and, and dealing so much also with, with history as, as well as the conjecture of the future as, as well, experiences of the human past as well. Does that sometimes you think, I've now put too much in my head of too many possibilities of exactly how things can go wrong and exactly how many times human beings have judged situations poorly? Can fuck it up. Well, I mean, I read a lot of history and so that gives me great confidence that I'm nowhere near exhausting the ability of human beings to, to fuck things up and, uh, and make, make poor decisions. Uh, you know, reading history is just an inexhaustible fount of new ideas on that front. And it, in fact, it kind of saves you a lot of trouble because you don't need to, um, don't need to come up with entirely original forms of error. It's all kind of laid out for you in, uh, in great detail. And I wondered, as someone who's won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and I know it's a something that's been quoted many times in terms of Arthur C. Clarke talking about the hazards of predicting the future, that either you will be far too conservative and obvious or it will be utterly absurd. How much do you think you you have learned over time and how many things do you think about? I mean, I think, for instance, like Carl Sagan when he was making Cosmos, which is obviously science reality, even at that time making thought, what are the things that I feel are solid enough that this will not date too badly? What are the things? So he was very, very careful with some of the ideas that he avoided and some of the ones he thought we will explore this further because I feel that is on such a bedrock. How do you deal with that when looking towards the future? Well, I mean, one thing that I think a lot of science fiction writers, including myself, have learned the hard way is that anything to do with the internet uh, and networks um, is tricky to deal with when you're trying to make predictions because that has moved so fast that it has it tends to outstrip the speed with which we can actually write and, and get books out uh, into publication. So, for example, I had to rewrite parts of Fall uh, or Dodge in Hell um, because events had gotten out ahead of me uh, on that front. So that's a tricky one. Um, I think in 
when we're dealing with more physical technologies, um, things where you actually have to build machines and, and deploy them that um, one is on a little bit safer ground as far as that goes, because it's just inherently a little slower for, for revolutionary changes to happen. When, when did your interest, when, when was the first time you started thinking about conjecture for technological possibilities? I think so often about the incredible ideas which can exist within science, but which cannot yet be explored. I mean, I think, for instance, with things like gravitational waves, mm-hmm. the period of time between their prediction to the quite remarkable achievement of detecting them. But you have there almost a century over that time. So I, I imagine that's one of the games that you're playing. You're inventing the technology which we currently do not have the ability to, to do. Well, there's different approaches that one can take. And you've, you've identified sort of a basic kind of fork in the road, I think, that science fiction writers frequently are faced with. And one is to um, kind of extrapolate things that we already have. And another is to, to postulate completely new innovations. So, and both, both work. So, you know, in seven eaves, for example, there's very little in the way of really new technology being talked about, at least in the first part. I mean, just by the nature of that book, it basically starts in the present day and it's the characters are presented with the situation where they have to, to uh, deal with a crisis using the technology that's at hand. Um, so there's not a lot of new inventing that happens there. Uh, and there are plenty of, of other science fiction books in that general vein, but, but it's also fun to, um, to ask the big what if questions, you know, what if we had teleportation? What if we had faster than light travel? You know, what if we had um, the ability to download a human consciousness into a computer? What would happen then? It's all equally productive of good, science fiction is just sort of a a decision that you have to make pretty early in a given project. I know it's something that Alan Moore's talked about, the the joy that he has as a writer in going, I don't actually have to go through years and years of testing and failure in a laboratory. I will create the machine with the best kind of technological information that can be gleaned, and then it exists on the page. So for that moment in your mind, you are the the true creator and inventor of something remarkable, and for all those people who are exploring that world as they read it as well. Yeah, in the case where where the writer is making something up that's that's new, um, that's certainly true. It's um, I'm for some reason I'm thinking about an Isaac Asimov uh, series of stories about uh, a chemical called, called thiotimoline, which um, was a some chemist had observed that when this powder was dumped into a beaker of water that it dissolved slightly before touching the water. So it was a a molecule that had an extension forward in time. And so you could use it to predict things that would happen. And so from that basic premise, um, he ended up building a pretty sophisticated infrastructure of technology, you know, sort of cascades of, of these reactors that would enable you to predict events farther and farther ahead of time. And, and so he wrote stories about how um, this eventually gets exploited and used to predict the outcome of horse races and, uh, and other such applications. And beyond a certain point, it's kind of spirals out of control. And, and you sort of have to draw a line and say, 
okay, we've had our fun, interesting idea, but this is almost too destabilizing in a way to carry forward all of the hypothetical applications. Whereas in a, a more realistically grounded kind of science fiction story, you're constrained in, I think, a positive and productive way in that the real constraints of the technology actually um, can provide interesting ideas and, and set up interesting fictional situations that are, uh, can be used to good storytelling effect. They create drama, they create challenges um, that the, the protagonists have to deal with. And they convey, I think, a sense of greater realism in that, you know, we all know that technologies have got drawbacks and limitations uh, and unintended consequences. Um, and so when we see those sorts of things occurring in the pages of a book, it, I think it, it aids in the suspension of disbelief in a way. We say, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of unexpected problem that, that would emerge, you know, if this were a real thing. How much does, uh, are at least some of your, your books driven initially by you going, I'm fascinated by this idea and I want to spend a long period of time with it. Thus, I will make it into a story because it seems to me that I know that you like reading, you know, nonfiction is, is, is really your area to, to, to explore uh, scientific possibilities. And so is that what, I mean, for instance, with Termination Shock, was, that, was the starting point of that an article? Was the starting point many different kind of emotions and, and, and thoughts about climate change? Well, there's a number of ways to get a book project going, and I've and that's one of them. Okay, uh, and each has got its own particular drawbacks and uh, and advantages. So, um, starting with an idea, as you've described, is a perfectly okay way to begin, and that is sort of how Termination Shot got started. The drawback or the thing that you have to keep in mind is that that alone doesn't make a story. You know? At the end of the day, we're in the business of telling stories that are compelling enough that readers are happy to sit there for a number of hours and turning the pages and enjoying the, the book. So I've had other projects that started more with a, a character or a, a, a situation, and then things accreted around that. If you're starting with the idea, that's fine, but then the first challenge that you have to contend with as a writer is to ask yourself, okay, no one's going to read a multi-hundred page book about an idea. So uh, who are the characters? Uh, what's the story that we can tell, that I can tell, that allows us to sort of come to grips with this idea and, and explore it without it being just a sort of didactic lecture series? Have you found yourself before getting you know, finding maybe six months into research and thinking, I still haven't found the story. I just, I, I, there are so many fantastic ideas here, but I cannot find that, that human story. I think I had that experience a couple of times early uh, in my career or really before my career got properly started simply because I didn't know what I was doing. But then that's a hard lesson to learn because you can spend a lot of time um, and write a lot of pages only to find out that you've wasted all that time and you've gotten nowhere. And so um, there's a bit of school of hard knocks, I think, that kind of led to uh, the realization that 
I needed to um, to focus on where's the story here. So the answer to your question is that it it never happens now because now I I've learned my lesson and I know that it's a really bad idea to get that far into a particular project without knowing what the story is. I find it so interesting that the the importance of history in you writing about the future, the importance of examining the past. And, and it seems termination shock comes from that. There are, are many stories, in, including stories of in, in ancient Rome, including I think in, in, in Norse society as well, that the, the effect of volcanic activity was was that where how how near the beginning was that to you creating the story you know i actually learned about the historical precedents i mean i knew about some of them of course but i i learned a lot more after the book was basically congealed than before so i just happened to um to read a book uh by kyle harper called the fate of rome uh, which is sort of a retelling of the story of the fall of the Roman Empire based on new things, that, new information that we have now about epidemiology and climate change. And uh, Children of Ash and Elm, which is a new history of the, the people we call the Vikings, which also talks a bit about, about that aspect. It's all kind of Information that earlier historians didn't quite have, they, they might have seen references to um, strange meteorological events in, um, in, in old primary sources, but they didn't have the detailed, you know, sort of ice core data and other sources of really hard scientific data that enable modern historians to, uh, to fill in that whole part of the, the picture. Yeah, I just want to get for for those who who haven't read the book yet as well. Just the that that started the 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 basic idea, the scientific idea behind it, the idea of dealing with climate change through sulfates. Can you run me through a little bit of of the research into that idea? Yeah. So the first thing to say about it is that if this ever gets done, it'll be a stopgap measure that doesn't really address the the problem. So the thing we really have to do is remove carbon from the atmosphere, but it's been observed many times throughout history that um, if there's a big volcanic eruption, um, it has to be really big. So the one in Tonga last month wasn't big enough, even though it was, it looked huge. But if there's a really big one, it um, ejects sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere where it sort of floats around for a couple of years before it eventually washes out. and. Uh, it's been observed many times throughout history that when this happens, the temperature all over the globe tends to go down for as long as those sulfates stay up there. So it's been suggested that we could, in effect, create artificial volcanoes by um, using airplanes or balloons or guns or some other technology to just directly inject the same material or Maybe other materials, it doesn't have to be sulfates, but we know sulfates would work into the stratosphere, uh, which would blunt the, the temperature rise associated with too much CO2 in the atmosphere. It doesn't help with the underlying problem, and it doesn't help with some of the other consequences of atmospheric CO2, like ocean acidification. But... Um, the, the argument for using it 
is is maybe explained in um, if you read the opening chapter of Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. He's got a typically for him a very finely wrought, well researched depiction of what's called a wet bulb event, wet bulb disaster in India, where just locally the temperature and the humidity becomes so high that it is physically impossible for humans to stay alive uh, unprotected. And uh, they run out of gasoline to run their generators, to run their their air conditioners, and um, a lot of people die. Just a, a frank heat stroke. So if we start seeing mass casualty events like that um, in coming decades, then I think it's going to lead to people asking the question, you know, should we be doing this? Should we be doing this atmospheric sulfur injection, you know, as a way of, of preventing these disasters during the decades that it's going to take for us to spin up a proper carbon capture program? What do you think? I mean, we are seeing extreme weather events, and and I've seen you talk obviously about you know some of the extreme things we saw in the Pacific Northwest recently. But it seems, and we've seen this as well, I think, with the pandemic, where there seems to be amongst some humans a psychology that says, unless I've seen it directly, unless I've experienced it directly, mm-hmm. I'm not going to believe it's true. And it and that does feel to be part of the battle with climate change. We're we're, we're seeing, you know, we've seen it in in Australia, we've seen it across mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. extreme events but unless it actually I, th- I think you said somewhere once you know and, and until your house is flooded then you go oh, i think the sea has moved in now and that's yeah. a little bit late yeah it is um that is the central problem you know of our age really is that this really bad things are going to be happening um but it is uh it's difficult to to get everyone to believe in it at once. So you know, during the three days of the heat dome in the Northwest last summer, everyone's minds were focused on, on climate change, but then it suddenly the temperature dropped by 50 degrees Fahrenheit literally overnight, and then people kind of forgot about it. And so uh, there are all these little micro catastrophes that, I mean, they're not micro if, they, if you're in the middle of one, but globally speaking, they're pinpoint events um, that get people interested in the topic for a few days, but it doesn't seem to add up to um, a consensus as to what should be done. Um, and even if it did, we've you know, in the West, we've gotten pretty bad about taking big decisive actions. You know, we, in the United States, we can't even build trains. So the odds of a Western democracy sort of implementing any kinds of programs like this, I think, are pretty small. So in Termination Shop, we we have a kind of maverick billionaire. In terms of your best, I won't say optimistic, but should we say possibilistic uh, ideas, what would you see as being a way that this climate change would start to be dealt with? Well, Again, the thing that makes me feel optimistic just within the last, you know, since the book got published, really, is that I'm seeing a lot of smart people um, turning their attention to carbon capture as a, an engineering project that's deserving of, of massive resources. Um, and that is, you know, 
that's the name of the game for the next hundred years is we need to sort of put as much as we can into processes of whatever type that will extract excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And um, it may just be anecdotal on my part. I, I don't have any figures to back this up, but just it appears to me that suddenly a lot of nerds are, are getting really interested in, in carbon capture. The geoengineering thing, the the so what's called solar radiation management is the, or or um, solar geoengineering. So bouncing back part of this sun's radiation um, is you know it's like it's kind of the equivalent of applying a tourniquet to your severed arm so that you can get to the hospital. You know it's it's a terrible thing that that you do in a really bad situation. Um, and not to be confused with a, uh, a real solution. Whether that's gonna happen or not, I don't know. I think there's a lot of opposition to it. And, um, and the people who oppose research or, or development of, of these things um, have a lot of, of uh, levers that they can, levers and knobs that they can turn on the control panel of modern society to slow things down and, um, and prevent work prevent work from happening. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So again, before we started actually this conversation on air, we were talking a little bit about social media, and I think you know reading books like Merchants of Doubt, which uh, I don't know if you've, you've you've read that book, which is basically it looks at how uh, the tobacco industry uh, managed to fight against the idea that cigarettes would be a cause of cancer, and then how similar methods have been used also by fossil fuel companies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is that one of the things, do we need to somehow radically rethink our uh, relationship with the way that, that media can pour out? I mean, because it only, once an idea has gone out there, it's going to take, as, as we know, the old thing, which is it's, it's, it's much easier to fool someone than to uh, persuade them that they've been fooled. And once an idea has gone out there, once it's stuck in there, it requires a lot of work to shift that. And I think I've seen a lot in terms of on social media of, of very rapid reactions that are kind of refuting the ideas of, of so many scientists in climate change. And then you have to deal with people one by one, you know, to, to try and persuade them and to try and offer them the, the more accurate information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, um, like, I, I guess my kind of meta observation about all this is that there are very few people in the world who believe in scientific truth just out of pure noble rarefied motives um and people are more apt to um to pay attention to these things um 
if there's something in it for them. So if you look at the scientific revolution 300 years ago, you know, there were a few sort of pure seekers of truth who were kind of leading the, leading the way, but um, it rapidly became clear that there's money to be made from steam engines or from um, annuities uh, in the, the Bank of England or you know, various other practical applications of the scientific method. And so, um, so as soon as that became clear, then all, all sorts of people jumped on the, the bandwagon uh, because they could see how it was going to I was going to help them right now on social media in sort of what passes for debate in social media, there's very few consequences, good or bad for, for most people. I mean, you can, you can do shit posting about or trolling about whatever you want. It doesn't really affect your personal reputation. Um, you know, it's just a, so a way of scoring points or amusing oneself uh, on, on the internet. And, um, you know, it's it's generally more amusing to to sow trouble and to to get people riled up and to score cheap points on your your rhetorical adversaries uh, than it is to um, to familiarize yourself with the the facts with with the, the reality. Um, so, and, and until that can be changed, I don't think any amount of preaching or or finger shaking, you know, is going to to change the way people behave on the internet i mean d- during your process of, uh, of of writing the book and then also since it's been published i would imagine have you had more interaction with people who just said well neil you know i don't really believe this and have you seen this kind of the hockey stick thing actually and and i wondered if you've found yourself or indeed found any methods that have been more useful or which have properly opened up a conversation as opposed to kept it as a as a kind of an argument of just two sides yeah, I actually, you'd be surprised um, how little of the I've heard from from denialists. Um, I think the um, and that may just be self selection that they're they're not going to read read the book. But there, there's a um, I think there is a tendency for people to um, to sort of deny it, or I think there's a fair amount of I'm going to call it bad faith denial that that happens where someone who really thinks climate change is real claims that they don't think it's real because, you know, they're uh, staking out a political position or they don't want to, um, uh, they don't want to lose an argument. And some of that I think stems from a feeling of hopelessness that, um, you know, the, the scope of the problem seems so enormous and um, uh, it's, it seems so difficult to come to grips with that, people would just rather kind of put their heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening than uh, they kind of expose themselves to the, the difficult process of thinking it through and trying to imagine what, what can I do as one individual about this, this problem. So I think if something that can change the conversation is if one can point to practical things that, that we can do is to, to attack the, the, the problem in a serious way. And again, the, the answer is carbon capture, um, but a temporary stopgap answer might be solar geoengineering. I wondered, uh, and I've seen you talk about this in the past as well, about now it seems 
science, the political battle lines are getting clearer and clearer. And it's not always, it's not as if the left are for science and, and, and the right are against science. It depends yeah. on the science. We see yeah. that, for instance, it's more likely in terms of genetic modification that you will get a large number of people on the left who will be highly critical of the science there. And then on the right, we will see that within climate change. But it does seem to me that I've not, maybe it's just my own naivety, maybe it's a lack of research. But in terms of science where the battle lines are drawn so much based on your own political biases it's it's become a lot more central to the arguments and i think you know during the bush administration uh the second bush administration uh i remember you know an enormous number of books coming out saying suddenly now it seems scientific denialism is is becoming a big problem in 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 the u.s yeah again i think there was a through most of the 20th century there was a, an upside, a big upside to, to science that was obvious to everyone. So you had uh, the polio vaccine, you had you know, the ability to fly around on airplanes, um, and even simple things like washing machines, blenders, you know, uh, um, antibiotics. Um, there were all of these technological innovations that made very clear practical changes for the better in, in people's lives, their life expectancies. And um, now we, that seems to have slowed down. I mean, we, we see improvements, you know, video games have gotten a lot better looking. Um, you know, the, the internet runs faster. Uh, you don't need a modem anymore, that, that kind of thing. But it no longer seems to be improving life for most people on the same pace and scale as, as what we saw 100 years ago. So that, I think, makes it a lot easier for, for people to, to kind of just pull back and, and look at all scientific authority and, um, and expertise with, uh, with a jaundiced eye. And as you say, it, it then starts to boil down to, uh, okay, how does, this, how does this kind of interact with my political orientation? You know, I'm, I'm going to judge this, this science, you know, based on whether it's good or bad for my, for who I am uh, politically. And so you end up with a lot of kind of bad faith uh, argumentation and, you know, so point scoring on the internet. I wonder how much it's also down to the fact that news has become such a big entertainment industry because you just, you need a desk and a reasonable quality camera. And we have, you know, in the US and the UK and, and in many places, you know, around the world now, there's 24 hour news, there's loads of news programs, there's panels which are filled with people, none of whom are normally experts, but all of whom are brilliant at having opinions. That's what they do. They have yeah. opinions for all those different newspapers. And I wonder how much that has also hastened uh, the pace where the these things become about identity and become about the culture wars. Yeah. In the States, you know, we had Walter Cronkite and um, some competitors on the other major networks, but there were only three major networks and they all shared in a certain kind of consensus about the story that they were going to tell and, you know, seemed to have the, the confidence of a pretty large chunk of the electorate. And so, now, as you say, anybody who sits in front of a desk with a microphone and a camera is, in a way, kind of arrogating to themselves the authority of, of a Walter Cronkite. And we tend to believe them and accept them as credible, even though they're just some random person and there's not the whole kind of editorial infrastructure in place um, uh, causing them to 
state views that are in line with the uh, sort of mainstream political consensus. So, so yeah, it's a fragmented kind of news environment right now. And as is well known, people just pick and choose the, the news that they want to uh, believe in. It makes the, the, that book by Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death. Uh, it now looks like quite a jolly, optimistic book, really. I, that, that one, which is, and it's one of my favourite books, actually, for, I think that was what, it was not far off 1984, was it, that it came out? Because it was about, are we in an Orwellian future or a kind of Huxley future? Yeah, yeah. And the, the Huxley one being more superficially benign. Yeah, so... Um, I don't know what to, to, to tell you, but um, the um, I, I think there's I, I keep hearing people claim that there's a, a whole lot of dissatisfied middle of the road people uh, who don't feel that the, the left or the right represents them at all uh, and are sort of bewildered by the, the fact that um, uh, middle-of-the-road voices don't seem to get a hearing. How do you feel about your responsibility as an author when you are dealing with with big subjects, but you're also, as you say, you are a storyteller. That's, you know, the, the entertainment is a very important part of it. Do you feel that hand on your shoulder, though, in terms of the responsibility of, of dealing with these issues? Uh, I try not to. I don't think it's um, productive of good fiction, I think. I'm sort of a hardcore um, believer in artistic license, artistic freedom. And uh, I, I think that um, there's always uh, people who are of a political mindset, be it left or right, are always, always, always looking for some way to bring art under their control. They just can't help themselves. It just disturbs them to see people making art. So there's always various efforts underway to, um, to suborn art and artists and, and turn them into a propaganda wing, basically for one party or another. And, you know, the, the different political orientations have different ways of doing that from rightists. It might just be straight up censorship and forced adherence to, to a you know, certain code of, of conduct and on the um, uh, on the left, it tends to be more um, sort of, I think, kind of insidious, sort of guilt tripping, and basically coming up with ideological explanations of why it, it begins by saying that all art is ultimately political anyway, and then once uh, you've swallowed that, then you've already lost because if you agree to the proposition that all art is political, then why shouldn't you, you know, why shouldn't you turn all of your artistic output into overtly political propaganda? So um, uh, I'm a, a pretty strong believer in, um, in, in rejecting that, that hand on my, my shoulder, um, because I think it's always someone with bad intentions who's trying to, um, who's trying to bring art and artists under their control. And just one more thing, which is in terms of science fiction as a whole, do you feel that now it's had 
it does have a greater level of acceptance that now it is beginning to uh, be revered because it, you know, for a long time, I suppose, crime fiction, horror fiction and science fiction have all been ghettoized. And I, I still, I, I was on a show recently talking about Roadside Picnic by uh, the Stragatsky brothers and the other two people had never read any science fiction were kind of rather, you know, even, even though it's, it's connected to Tarkovsky, so it's got all of the art house stuff that might yeah. be necessary, but they were still kind of, I was really amazed because that was a fascinating book and I really enjoyed it. And it still seems there's a bit of a battle going on with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny situation where um, it's, you know, it is a ghetto that is a far, far more upscale neighborhood than, than the term ghetto implies, right? So if you look at the bestseller lists, uh, the list of the top grossing films and television shows um, over the last couple of decades is utterly dominated by fantasy and science fiction. I mean, it's just complete domination. I mean, they, the, the New York times had to keep rejiggering it's how they calculated and how they classified their bestseller list in order to prevent the Harry Potter books from just filling the list year after year, decade after decade. So the top films, the top TV shows, video games are heavily science fiction and fantasy based. And we know that video games are a larger market than television now or than, than film and, and, and television. So it's just a funny situation where I guess it kind of seems like we're in a ghetto when we're talking to sort of literary fiction people, but if they're living in a, a really small corner of the of the the space and um they're they're not where the the focus of popular attention is is really directed yeah i, I always find it interesting when certain people who try and say but margaret atwood doesn't actually write science fiction you know there's right. a certain yeah, that, level the, of reverence where well, it's, it's kind of uh um, we've got an enormous number, as I predicted, uh, one of my rare uh, accurate predictions, an enormous number of questions. The first one, again, something we were just beforehand, and I, I don't know if you want to answer this or, or not from Jane, which is Mark Zuckerberg, hero or villain? I, I think it's clear that, that social media in general and Facebook in particular have got a lot to answer for in terms of the effect that they've had on our society. Now, uh, how that might change you know, I think I think time will tell, but um, but right now the the business model of social media, as we've all seen, is based on an algorithmic system that um, tends to feed people whatever reflects the highest level of emotional engagement. And when you let that experiment run without any breaks on it across the whole world for years at a time. Um, it creates breakdowns in our ability to function as a democratic society. Um, so I don't think um, that uh, any of this was, was a deliberate choice. I think it's a, just sort of a doomsday machine that, that got out of hand. Um, but, you know, I think that's all in the past. And what matters now is, um, is what, what these people do with the situation we've got now that it's understood what has happened. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, 
Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Uh, next question is from an anonymous attendee, though, who says that they've uh, been enjoying your work since 1998 and been fascinated to know, first of all, how you conduct your research and how critical is it for you uh, to make the work historically and scientifically accurate? Uh, it depends a bit on the, the nature of the, the project. So, um, you know, one, one is always looking for little bits, little elements that can contribute good story ideas. And many times those emerge from, um, from research. Um, so in reading about historical events, you might come across things that are remarkable in some way and that you never would have imagined on your own. And so um, that's a great source of, of ideas. And as I was talking about earlier, if you're doing something that's more science or engineering based, um, again, the more research you do into how these things work, the more opportunities you can stumble upon for uh, for twists in a story or little little uh, things you wouldn't have thought of yourself, but that when you put them into the story, add a kind of verisimilitude and, and help draw the reader in and make them uh, really, really, really sell the, the idea. So the, the, I would, you know, without being coy, I would say you sort of have to do enough research, but not too much. And that that is um, something that one learns over time. So um, it's not obvious at first, but um, my general trend earlier was in earlier in my career was to to over research um, and um, and then have too much material to work with and have to do a lot of of cutting back. And um, once you've got that. So thoroughly pounded into your head, then I think you develop a certain kind of uh, awareness of uh, how much is enough. So um, I can go into a book or visit a museum or visit some historical site and, and now kind of have a, a sense, sense as to, to whether I've, I've got enough. And, um, and, and at that point, um, I tend to stop gathering new material not because it's not interesting because it's it's frequently fascinating but i just know i've got what i need to write that next chapter thank you uh next question is uh, as the author of cryptonomicon what do you think of cryptocurrencies a disaster for the planet or the future of growth and of course you're allowed to have an alternative answer yeah i was going to say that's quite a quite a choice um no i I understand the um traditional uh bitcoin is based on a blockchain that it's based on a system that um, that only works if uh, you spend a lot of energy mining these these coins by doing complicated mathematical calculations, and so um, it uh, it's not good for the, the planet for sure. Um, I don't think I've been talking to a lot of people in this space, and none of them sees that as really the future of, of cryptocurrency. There's all sorts of of other uh, ways of making cryptocurrencies that that use much, much, much less energy, and moreover, some of them just build in carbon offsets. So for what carbon they do produce, they're they're buying you know carbon capture credits. So I think that the 
the environmental objection to cryptocurrencies, while it, it was well-founded a few years ago, is rapidly sort of receding. And so, um, so then we get into other questions of, about you know, whether it's good or bad. And, and most of the, a lot of the adherents of cryptocurrency are big fans of, of anonymity and decentralization. And um, what we're sort of finding is that neither of those is practically working out the way it was expected. You can, there are ways to figure out who owns a given wallet. And um, since all transactions on a blockchain are, are public, it's not hard in most cases to trace wallets to specific people. And the decentralization is um, something that hasn't materialized in practice as much as, as, it, as was hoped. Um, but I think that um, so setting all that aside, there are some really interesting things that you can do with it, with cryptocurrencies involving smart contracts and so on that are, that I think are really the thing that people are going to, to fasten on to uh, in, in coming years uh, and make it into uh, uh, a really interesting new technology. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Peter, who would like to know, he said, what would you say to many respectable people who object to the use of technology to fix social problems, how we live, flying, eating meat, etc.? Some people would call it technological utopianism. Well, my shirt is held closed by this button, which is a technology. There's no clear line you know, between technology and non-technology. We're completely surrounded by and immersed in all kinds of technologies. So when people talk this way, they're usually talking about anything new. So anything invented after I was born is technology. And I think it's a bit facile to say, I, this questioner probably doesn't mean it this way, but, um, but some people speak of technology or solutionism or utopianism in a way that I think doesn't bear up under serious analysis. The climate crisis has, has come about because um, we burned a lot of stuff in various technological machines. And that's a fact. Anyone who understands the science knows that um, it happened. The, um, the solution to that problem is not to, to stop burning things because it won't help. Carbon dioxide remains in the atmosphere for uh, hundreds of thousands or even millions of years before natural processes can extract it. Um, so we have no choice but to um, create new technologies that'll they'll remove that carbon dioxide from the air. And um, you know, to 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 point out that fact isn't um, utopianism or solutionism or any of that. It's just stating uh, is stating the reality. And I think there are very few people who are so naive anymore as to think that, um, as to adopt that kind of utopian mentality that, that we used to see in the middle of the, the 20th century. Thank you. Uh, Teresa wondered if you would talk about your experiences of the Silicon Valley technocrats who adore your work and indeed are now building metaverses. So what have, is there anything you'd like to share? The, the names she particularly mentions are Elon Musk and Bill Gates, but obviously, again, it is free to you to answer in any way you wish. Oh, thanks. Well, I haven't met Elon Musk. We've had a lot of near misses, um, but um, 
I've met Bill Gates. Um, you know, they um, it, it just were living in a funny era of history where um, people with strong grasp of math, science, technology were able to to build big companies and and accumulate a lot of of wealth. And so they tend to have tastes that are geared towards science fiction. It's sort of a natural a natural combination. And so um, it's it's gratifying to to have um, uh, a successful person um, say that they like your work. You know, it's um, uh, from time to time one gets to meet such a person and have a conversation with them. I don't think that they're really making big decisions um, based on what they see in a work of fiction. They're they're way too smart and and sort of savvy about finance and business to to go around making choices that way. So, um, you know, I, I think it's more of a, of a friendly relationship and, and probably less influential, less of a direct influence than, than one might imagine. And the final question, apologies, we get so many questions. I'm sorry I haven't been able to uh, get through all of them. Uh, Tim would like to know, uh, is the way to change the world first in our hearts and hands and then work outwards from there? What is the role of stories and compassion? Well, I think that, I mean, compassion is a trait that that everyone has at some level, unless they're really suffering from a a severe psychiatric disorder. And so um, the question is, how do we, um, how do we allocate it? There's 7 billion people on the earth. We can't feel compassion for all of them. Most of us feel we're only capable of feeling true compassion for maybe a few hundred or maybe as many as a thousand people in our immediate circle. And everyone else is just kind of an abstraction. Um, if we see a, um, a photograph of a bereaved mother in a disaster zone or, you know, something like that, um, we can momentarily feel compassion for them, but um, we don't generally feel real compassion outside of our circle. So um, I think, Compassion is a good thing to have, but to rely on it too much is um, likely to um, maybe not produce the results that we would hope for. I, I think it's better in the long run to um, to engage on the basis of of facts and um, and and logic because that enables us to to see patterns such as you know, climate change and so on that. Uh, that, that can be obscured if uh, if all we're doing is reacting emotively to the, the feelings of of specific people. It sounds sort of like a chilly technocrat thing to say, but I think it's it's best in the long run. Neil, thank you very much. Termination Shock is out now. Thank you very much, everyone, uh, for watching this and to the How To Academy. And uh, Neil, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much, everyone. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Neil Stevenson and was presented by Robin Ince. It was produced by Luke Naylor-Perro and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed it, you might also like my interviews with William Gibson and Charles Yu, or our climate-themed pods with Jane Goodall, Jonathan Safran Foa and David Wallace-Wells. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.